Welcome to the Church on a Hill podcast. This is Pastor Corey Lahiri, and the Church on a Hill podcast is a ministry of Palouse Federated Church in Palouse, Washington. We are glad you joined us for this podcast, and we hope that that this will bless you. Hudson, we invite you back to uh, share with us how in the power of Christ you stand and how you will stand for Impact Ministry. We look forward to hearing what you have to share with us. Thank you again for having me. I was thrilled when I got an email from Corey a few days ago telling me, you know, message time could be pretty wide range of times. Um, so just to tell you a little bit about my preaching style, uh, I, A, I'm very long-winded, but B, I am severely jet-lagged. 72 hours ago, I was in New Zealand, and sleep and I have not been getting along. So this could go short. This could go long. We'll see. I usually give myself a lot of, you know, cliff notes. Let's talk. Let's see how I feel about wandering. So maybe I'll get you out of here early. Time will tell. Um, one other thing I like to tell anyone when I come out to preach, I'm really interactive. I don't ask rhetorical questions. I love interaction. So if you've got questions or insights, things, shout them out. I love to hear them, and I will ask you questions, hoping you'll actually respond. So just be aware of that. I know that's not every preacher's style. I shared a little bit earlier about, you know, impact and just gave you the broadest possible overview of what that looks like. But to be a little more specific about what we do, First thing is we're non-denominational, and I know that that's not necessarily common. Most of those big campus organizations you've heard of, they have roots with a specific type of denomination. We're non-denominational for a lot of what I said earlier. We want to customize our ministry to what individual students need, and the more you have tied to a specific dogma, the harder it can be to, to meet people exactly where they're at in that phase of life. Um, we want to be really focused on individual needs and not a specific curriculum. Our students are going to tell us what curriculum that they need or they're going to show us and make it apparent. Um, and one reason that's really important is I'm sure all of you know and have heard plenty probably throughout your whole lives about the dangers of the American campus and the effect that has on people of faith when they come in. Uh, to put a fine number on it, you guys have an idea about how many people go into their university experience as a person of faith and leave not as a person of faith. About how many people will step away? Anyone got a percentage guess? Half? That's a fair guess, but it's too low. It's about 70%. 70%. And that's not people that, you know, just walk in and may or may not already be a believer and leave not one. That's people that walk in that are. That's how many leave not particularly interested in any kind of faith experience. I personally, from my own background, I have some ideas about why this might be and particularly how it impacted me. I grew up a pastor's kid. My dad was a Southern Baptist pastor. I was raised as church-based as it gets, homeschooled until 10th grade, then put into a Christian high school, 
church twice every Sunday and once on Wednesdays and who knows what else got filled in in between. Not a whole lot of choices or option to engage the secular world until I got to the university. The reason all that's important isn't because, you know, any of that's bad necessarily or I'm trying to set aside any part of my upbringing. But what it means is the way that you combat people walking away from their faith as they step out into the world on their own isn't by just pouring knowledge in and assuming that knowledge is enough. You mentioned earlier, you're talking about, you know, what you can find on your phone. And I know I have elders at my own church, and they talk about their experience in the college university. And so much of it was just, here's where you find this. Here's where you find this in scripture. Here's how you relay this. Anyone who wants to can pull that up anytime they want. You just, ah, doesn't it say this somewhere? Yeah, here's the exact verse and how. They don't have to actually know it. They can just Google it. You know what else they can Google? Where does scripture conflict itself? What are the nasty things that the Bible says? This has made a foundation of faith that's just based in what you've been taught and what you know. It's pretty obsolete. That tool just undoes it. That's not to say that knowledge is good. It's to say that it's not enough. Students have questions. And if they go into an experience like I had, they have questions that they're not generally free to ask in faith environments. When they are challenged by scripture, when something doesn't make sense, they're told you just have to have faith and to accept what you've been taught and to not engage at a deeper level. That doesn't work. That's why 70% walk away, as I did. I took about 10 years off and said, no, thank you. I had some nasty events in my life that essentially threw me back into church because I was looking for free, free therapy. And I had an experience with Jesus for the first time in my life that was personal. That's why I'm here today. And it has nothing to do with the first 28 years of my life. So that's kind of just the background of what we're going to be looking at today. And... Um, my motivation is I want to look at the difference of a faith practice that's accepting teachings versus seeking experiences, experiences with God, not just head knowledge of God. And so what we're going to do is I know when you bring in one of these young millennials to preach, you know exactly where they're going. And I, I'm going to fall into the pattern right into the book of Numbers. It's what we all love, right? So we're going to go to Numbers chapter 14. Before we read the scripture, I'm going to set the stage a little bit for you. One thing that, the way that I preach, I've mentioned several things, I don't like to zone in on a specific passage, because I know one thing that I set aside a lot when I was asking my questions is, when you make a theology out of one verse, you probably have a very incomplete one. One Sunday is not enough to cover entire books of the Bible, but I'm going to try, because background means a lot to every story. No story lives on its own. So before we get to this passage in Numbers, we got to recap what we went through right before it, because it's a lot of pages in the Bible, but it's a pretty short period of time when you're looking at the grand scheme of the nation of Israel on its own. They've just gone through their exodus from Egypt. They spent 400 years in slavery. God sets them free. They fight with Pharaoh, plagues, you all know that. Red Sea, drown them out. They're on the other side, and as soon as they finish singing their song of praise to Jesus for freeing them from Egypt, the next thing that we have recorded is, we're hungry. 
and they're all just grumbling in the wilderness looking for food. Now, I don't want to diminish that. I'm hungry. Like, I don't do well when I'm hungry either. Um, that's the first thing we see. Grumbling is, is there. The Lord provides manna for them. And then we have the giving of the law, right? The Ten Commandments, and we've got this. We want to make this offering, Jesus is offering this covenant relationship with the nation. Do you want this? Yes or no? Be my people. And they say, yes, thank you. We are interested in that. And Moses goes back up on Mount Sinai to get the rest of the law, and he comes down, and what does he find? A golden calf, right? Did it walk out of the fire on its own? Well, according to Aaron, but I mean, we know that's not what happened, right? They get impatient, so they just go and they, they make their own God. So it doesn't take very long for their commitment to wane. Now, after that incident, there's some ugly things that occur, but then they get the rest of the law. Moses goes back up on the mountain after rage-tossing the tablets down, and he gets it all written down again, and he comes down and he gives them the law. And then they send their spies into Canaan. They're ready to go scout out the promised land so they can go in and they know how to build their temple and they've got it all set up and they know what their worship practices are going to look like. Now they just got to go find the land that they're going to practice it in. And they come back and they get a really bad report. Almost all the spies say, these people are huge. We've been slaves for 400 years. We are not warriors. We cannot win this war. We cannot take this land from these people. And it gets worse than that. I don't want to read this entire chapter, so I'm just kind of covering it in a bit so I can do a little more talking and a little less just relaying the exact history of this event. But they rebel against Moses. They've had enough. They have been scared of starving, and then they've been scared of being abandoned. That's why they build the calf, is they think Moses just died up on the mountain. And now they're scared that he's just going to lead them into a slaughter. And they, they uprise. They want a new leader, and they want to rebel. And so that's where we're at. They've just gone through the rebellion, and we're going to pick up in Numbers chapter 14, verse 26, and I'm going to read through to the end of the chapter. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who is counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things. To this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land, who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it, these men who were responsible 
for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the hill country, saying, Now we are ready to go up to the land that the Lord promised. Surely we have sinned. But Moses said, Why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there because you have turned away from the Lord. He will not be with you and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in this presumption, they went up towards the highest point in the hill country, though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormoth. All right, so the first thing I'm going to do is I want to ask you a question about that passage. It seems like it would be obvious, and it's right in there. But why does God want Israel to spend 40 years in the wilderness? And again, I am looking for a response. You do what they're told? So what you're saying is to punish them. So there's an issue with that. Because at the end of the chapter, they literally go to war. Right? If he wants to punish them, there's a pretty good opportunity right there. Not a single casualty is recorded. It just tells you how far he beats them back. Now, earlier in the chapter, we already told God's fed up and he wants to punish the spies. They're dead. They get a plague. They're done. And we've seen this earlier. This is not the first rebellion that we've seen. The ground opens up and just swallows, I don't remember the number, it's like 30,000 people. And we're told specific numbers. We're not told of a single person dying here. They all survive, and we don't know exactly where Hormah is. But to the best estimates I could find, it's somewhere between 50 and 40 miles from where they attacked. Can you imagine, God says, or Moses tells him, you won't succeed, God's not with you. It's not like the spies came back and gave misinformation that they couldn't handle this army on their own, right? Imagine disrespecting an opponent in war so much that you just swat them back for like 40 miles and you never even swing the sword and take one down. It kind of seems like that's what happened here. How do you think all these kids under 20 that don't get to go into the promised land for 40 years until that generation dies out when they see everyone come back from war still in their armor? That's got to be deflating, right? It kind of doesn't seem like punishment's exactly what he's going through. That seems like a really slow course to punish. Any other ideas? Okay, well, we hit the one that most people jump to. That's all right. Um, another one that I've heard a lot is, well, they need time to, to learn the law. God pretty much already gave it to them all. That's what the whole book of Leviticus is. The back half of Exodus is all how to set up the temple. There's a handful of laws given through the rest of Numbers. But, I mean, we're talking about maybe two of the next 
18 chapters or more law. And Deuteronomy is essentially Moses just giving a goodbye speech and recapping it all. It's not much new. It's not that they need to learn the law. Here's what I want to say, and here's where my landing point is on this. And I want to be careful that I don't claim to have all the answers. I'm going to say here's my landing point, not what's right. You can have a variety of opinions. The people of Israel, they've heard plenty about God, but their experience so far has been Egypt. They have the law, but they need to experience God. They have spent their whole lives in Egypt. They've spent, I don't know, two months in the desert. We don't know the exact amount of time. It's important to note that we're all carrying baggage from our past and our personal stories. I shared a little bit about mine, right? What is the Egyptian experience that Israel and all these people's entire lives up to this point has been? Slavery, right? Slavery. Uh, I, I'm assuming no one in here has ever actually lived as a slave, but few ideas. What does that look like? What's the daily experience? When does your day start? Sun up. Like, that's it, right? When does your work day end? Sun down. Yeah, the exact opposite side. How many days is your work week? Seven, just like it still is in most of the world, actually. Seven-day work week. How, as an individual person, what measures your value? Your production. How much did you get done? What you do for work and how far it goes for your master's sake, that is your value as a human being. That's it. You don't get to fight back. You don't have a value that's intrinsic. And here's the other thing that you have to think about the time. And this comes very unnatural when we're, you know, this many centuries down life with Western civilization kind of being what we understand. The other thing about the time that they lived in, polytheism is the standard. This whole monotheistic thing that they're doing doesn't make sense to any other culture around them. Now, most of you probably know that, but what you may not have registered and is not as widely known is what does polytheism look like? When they say there's all these gods, they think they're constantly clashing it out and fighting for power. Do they agree? Do they live in a senate where they just kind of vote and fight and there's these parties that push certain agendas forward and they're all of equal power? The power was thought to be geographically based. So you have a God that's dominant in this specific region. What's so cool, dig into this in your own time, we have no time to do this today, nor have I prepared for it, but each of the ten plagues, there are specific attacks on Egyptian gods. The Lord is showing, yeah, 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 this is his territory, you think. Here's me beating him at his own game. You think the Nile is a god? It's blood now. Let's see it change its texture back to what it was. The sun is the god. Sky's black, right? That's what God's doing. So they have reason based on everything they've learned about how these divine powers work in their entire life, that at some point this powerful God is going to run into the geographic boundary of his power. So as silly as it may seem to think that I just watched you take out the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, how can I not trust you for the next army? Well, what if he's reached the end of his range? 
that's a problem that they're going to have. Okay, so Canaan may not be somewhere where Yahweh has power. This is their experience. So these are all the things that they've been carrying around. It is their experiential understanding of their entire world. Just a question. Go for it. Look how well their God has equipped them. We must be going into his zone now. Are we sure ours can measure up? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay, so that's, there's a reason that they might still be scared because everything they've learned about God's their entire life is you're powerful in a specific area. They have never left Egypt before. They don't know what their God's range is. They don't think it's unlimited. God has to help his people undo that mindset. And this is what I was talking about earlier. Knowledge, they've got plenty of it, they've heard. Experience, they have none of it. As much as it's presented and it looks like it's a response or a punishment to these three different instances of rebellion and complaining and not trusting God in the scripture, my opinion here is that after three times of watching these situations, God says, oh, you just, you need more time to get it. If you, I, I, we, I can clear out these Canaanites right now, sure. And if you walk into the land, you're not going to live as my people. You don't understand me yet. And the law is not enough. The law is not enough for you to grasp me. Okay? Now, immediately after this story that we just read through, I'm not going to read through Numbers chapter 15, but this is the one of two chapters, I think, for the rest of this book where there's actually laws given. And he immediately steps into it. There's three things that you're going to see God teaches people there. The first is the types of offerings they can give after entering the promised land. Now, how helpful does that seem immediately after that last story? They just heard we're not going for 40 years, and almost everyone that's listening never gets to live this wild. The next thing is offerings for unintentional sin. Unintentional sin. He just finished giving the law. So this is immediately God is stating, you're still going to need it in the future. The promise hasn't changed. And the law will not stop you from sinning. Those two things are a given. So again, it's not saying the knowledge fixes the problem. And three... And this is why I harped on earlier so much. It may not have seemed like it fits so much in that point of slavery, but their value is in their production, right? That's all they know. The third thing we talk about in Numbers 15 is you violate the Sabbath, there's a death penalty. How much more intrinsically can you put a point that what you do is not what you're worth? You're going to take a day off. And if you don't, you're going to pay for it. You have intrinsic value. Your effort is not what drives things forward, and your value is not your production. That's what God's hammering home. Those are the three things. Now, none of that makes life in the desert any easier, does it? It doesn't help at all. But he's going to give God, God is giving his people time to understand him, to wander with him. They're not getting anything done in the desert. These next 40 years that they spend, about the only 
thing that happens of consequence is they get water from a rock, a couple of leaders die, and some sorcerer from a country they're wandering through tries to curse him and talks to a donkey. Now, none of those things do much in the way of really growing Israel up from a knowledge standpoint. So this is the first point I want to make in the first real application question. This I don't expect you to shout out answers to. Let's make this one redundant. Because they have all the knowledge and they still have to experience things. Because knowing the law doesn't actually mean that they understand their God. Do you ask God questions? Do you let him challenge your understanding? And this is the hardest thing for me. Because when I entered my university years and I started encountering new parts of life and I had this critical thinking that was coming at me, I had been raised and my only thought process was, no, this is who God is and this is exactly how life is supposed to be lived. And if I run into a conflict where that actually doesn't make sense in the real world, I have two options. Ignore the conflict and whatever pain that might actually enact on other people or assume that my faith is wrong and lessen how much of it I have. Okay? That's not a healthy way to look at things, and that's why 70% stop practicing their faith, because they have to choose. Do I ignore my every impulse about what I'm seeing as right or wrong, or evil and good in the world, or do, I, or do I just set my faith aside? Or maybe you ask questions and you reassess things, because maybe not a fun thing to say to a room full of relative strangers, Whatever your theological thoughts are on who God is, at least somewhere, one place, you're wrong. And so am I. God is too big for you to understand him perfectly. We have to always keep reassessing who God is in light of our experience. Now, scripture doesn't change. Don't hear me saying that. I believe this is the absolute truth. But that doesn't mean that we always understand it well. So that's the first thing I want you to take that home with you. What do maybe I ask questions about? Where do I need to understand God better? And just let him speak to that. Let him bring it into you. I'm not going to challenge you on that, but I guarantee you he has some things he, he might want you to reconsider. That's what we're going to talk about in numbers, so we're done with that. But... All this time in the desert and the wilderness, it has applications in the New Testament with a guy you've probably heard of called Jesus, who I like a lot, and I hope you like a lot too. And he, he likes scripture a lot, and he has plenty to say about this story. So, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 4 now. Just a short chunk of verses here, 1 through 11. If anyone was curious, I don't think I said earlier, I'm reading out of the NIV. I don't know what standard is for you guys here. But. So Jesus tempts, uh, not tempts, Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness is the header I've got here. You might be familiar with this passage. So I'm going to read it and see if we can see why this might really be important and similar to the story we just read. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Before I jump in and do all my shtick with this passage, did parallels to that chunk in numbers we just read jump out to anybody? Anyone see similarities? Forty days, right? Which is that that exact time period is referred to in that numbers period. Where does Jesus enter to be tempted? The desert, the wilderness, right? That's usually the header that we put on it. The wilderness, where Israel's just got told they're going to spend their next 40 years. What's so cool about Jesus isn't just his teachings and the sacrifice that we're aware of, but the way he lives out a redemption of stories of people's past. What I see here and you'll see this, and he does it a lot. There's so much specifically in the book of Matthew where Jesus is telling you, I know you hold up and revere Moses. I'm the new Moses. And you see like things from our Torah, the first five books of scripture that Moses is historically attributed as the writer of, and how he fixes those stories, things that went wrong in them. So we already called out, he's out there for 40 days. It's the same amount that Jesus, or uh, the spies were in Canaan, and then 40 years is how long that they have to spend wandering in the wilderness. Now, Jesus was faced with three temptations, right? And earlier, I was talking about in our lead-up to that punishment or wandering edict that we heard about in Numbers, three times Israel said, ah, I don't really trust God very much in this moment. Three times, and we're going to see exact parallels to these temptations. We go back to Numbers. What was that very first instance of Israel not showing trust in God? Remember what it was? They're grumbling because they don't have any food. What's our first temptation here? Forty days, no food, make this bread, right? How does Jesus respond? He can fix the problem on his own, does he? No. No, God's, God's going to be fine. I don't live on bread alone, right? He immediately sees the historical parallel to the people he's representing. And he says, I'm going to do the right thing here. Second temptation. What do we have? It's kind of a weird one, right? Attempt suicide and God will fix it. Like that's really what the second temptation is. Said God will call angels, why don't you just throw yourself down? Like that's something he'd want to do. Very peculiar thing to tempt someone with. But what he's doing is he's saying, well, 
you can call down and control divine presence. So why don't you show your power here? What's the second mistake that Israel made in the desert? Shimmering hoofstock, right? A golden calf. Moses is gone. He's the only one that's talking to God. Well, I guess we need to make our own. We're going to have to create our own divine power. All these other nations got one. We need one too. He's offering Jesus the chance to make the same mistake that Israel did, to try and control deified power on their own. And Jesus says, nah, I'm good. Third temptation. What do we see in Matthew? What's the third temptation? Worship me. Not worship God, right? Worship the tempter. Rebellion. Okay. Fix this power on your own. Think. Everyone's mile may vary on how much Jesus like prophesied and knew his entire life in front of him at the moment. There's a lot of theories on that. I think it's safe to say he understands that he's going to be crucified. There is a path to accomplish the mission he was sent to do. And it's painful. He's not going to enjoy that. Oh, and you know what else is painful? 40 years wandering in the desert. Why don't you just bow down? We'll just have a pain-free version. We can skip that. Why don't you get to the end? I know I said it's going to be 40 years, but why don't you just go ahead and wander on up that hill and try and fight without the Lord and take the land on your own. Go use your power to do it on your own. Same temptation. Jesus again says, no, thank you. He's facing, I know they look different, but the same core effect, the same sin that he's being tempted with are the three that we've already watched Israel fail with before they spend their 40 day, years wandering. And at the end of Jesus' 40 days, he says, no. And that's why he's showing you, I'm the chosen one of Israel. I can, do, I can fix the past. Well, I can't, that's poorly worded. I am not going to fall victim to the mistakes of our past. Through me, you can see the correct way forward. And in all three of the times when he rejects the temptation, he does so by quoting what? Scripture from, anyone know where? All three of his references are the book of Deuteronomy, saying your experience matters. After you wandered for 40 years, you get this speech from Moses. We've decided this is Holy Scripture. There it is. There's the lesson. It came from your experience. You went through 40 years of wandering, and here's where it lands. And Jesus is not saying the 40 years in the desert were useless. He's using that experience as the core of how he rejects the temptation himself. Israel needed time in the desert to reject their Egyptness by experiencing God. Jesus rejects all these temptations um, using those verses instead because he already has that experience with God. It's that that makes the difference, not that he knows the text better. This is the culmination, in my view, of the 40 years in the wilderness and how Jesus goes back and he corrects history. Jesus models his worthiness to lead people as the new Moses. And he does this 
by having disciples of his own who walk with him for three years. I don't know how much you guys know about historical rabbinicism. Has that come up much in this, in your church? I don't like to assume. He's a rabbi, right? So often we hear this term rabbi. And what I had understood for a long time is that just meant teacher. He was their teacher. It's very different. A rabbi is not just a teacher. It's someone who has, in all likelihood, memorized the entirety of the Old Testament. And he calls specific uh, disciples, people that are over the age of 12, have finished the formal education that would be provided for them in the Jewish state. And he says, I see potential in you to be a leader of men in the same way that I am. Follow me. And not only are you going to learn the text, you're going to learn to walk out scripture the same way I do. They would go everywhere with their rabbi. Every day of the week, they would follow him around, see how he loved God and followed God, and learn to love and follow God the same way that their rabbi did. That's what he does. Experience was actually the teaching model. It's a, you've all heard the words. And everyone, before they reached age 12 in that society, would have memorized their Torah. They all knew Genesis through Deuteronomy by heart. I guarantee you that. But he invites them into experience. Now let's see how you live it out. Let's go do it. Let's ask questions of the script. You know the words. Do you know how to apply them? Let's go practice. He walks in experience with them. And he invites them to ask a lot of questions. That's the landing point I want to get you guys to today. To close this out, I've just actually got um, a quote from a song. This is my favorite song when I was a teenager, and it's actually come to resonate me, with me so much more as an adult. Um, it's a, well, they were, they were moderately big in the exact circle I grew up in, and I don't know how many people here have ever heard of a band called the Orange County Supertones. They were a Christian ska band that was popular in the late 90s. They have a song called Wilderness, and it's very much about walking through an uncertainty and doubt. The chorus of this song goes, have you ever held in doubt what this life is all about? Have you questioned all the things that seem important to us? Do you really want to know, or are you a little scared that God is not exactly who you'd have him be? And that means a lot to me, and it still does, because he's probably not. Because if God is exactly who I'd have him be, God would be me. I usually am more or less who I'd like to be, <laughs> for better or for worse. But just as that course reflects the wandering in the desert and the asking of the questions, it also ends with this acknowledgement of the supremacy of Jesus that I kind of tried to quickly recap by this teaching in Matthew. He ends the song by saying, Singing, God, do you really understand what it's like to be a man? Have you ever felt the weight of loving all the things you hate? Have you struggled? Have you worried? How can you sympathize? After a pause, says, I've spoken much too soon. I put my hand over my mouth. I can't contend with you. Your ways are so much higher as you pass through the fire that Christ endured before us when we were in the wilderness. Find your wilderness. God has good for you there. Ask questions, challenge, experience him. If he is the good God we all believe him to be, he will lead you to the right answers, and you don't have to stick with the ones you've been taught to accept in blind faith.
That is all I have for you. I hope it was some value. Thank you. Hello, friends. I truly pray that this message blessed you. And if you want to find out more about our ministries or listen to other messages or videos of our worship services, you can check us out at palousechurch.org or search for Palouse Church on YouTube or check us out on Facebook or we are on uh, the Bible app. There's different ways to find us. You can always email me, Corey, C-O-R-E-Y, at palousechurch.org uh, to connect with me or to send me a prayer request. We really appreciate you connecting with us in this way, and may God bless your day.